Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Hannah Elias. In this episode, we have a unique perspective on the memoir and biography and on the art of writing about lived experiences. Alison Light tells us a very personal story about her ongoing efforts to write a memoir of a marriage, specifically one about her relationship with Raphael Samuel, who passed away in 1996. Raphael Samuel was one of the pioneers of history from below, and he's one of the founders of History Workshop. He was described by Stuart Hall as one of the most outstanding, original intellectuals of his generation. Alison Light is a celebrated writer and scholar in her own right. Her remarkable work takes her readers into the fine grain and texture of everyday lives. It's the relationships between family, friends, and members of a community that matter in her work because these form the substance of everyday life. She shows how these relationships are shaped by ideas about economics, culture, nation, race, class, and gender. She has an interdisciplinary approach to history, one that weaves literary, historical, and cultural studies. Her work has been applauded for opening up new vistas and for using women's history and popular fiction as a way of illustrating how family history is ultimately public history. Her book Common People was published in 2014 and it was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize in nonfiction. She's currently an honorary professor in the Department of English at UCL and a senior associate of Pembroke College, Oxford. In this podcast, you will hear Alison offer personal, intimate, and scholarly reflections on her marriage to Raphael Samuel. She uses their marriage as a kind of a lens through which to see their past and also her future. She also reflects on our ideas of personal life, suggesting instead that the public sphere cannot be separated from private experiences, especially in the process of writing a memoir. As we share more and more of our lives online, this is something that we're all increasingly familiar with. This is a recording of a talk that Alison gave at Queen Mary University of London. You'll hear her refer to a series of images while she's speaking, and we've reproduced those and shared them on our website so that you can follow along. Visit historyworkshop.org.uk and click on the podcast links to find them. Here's Alison Light. Let me start with a photograph. A year ago, in last December, on the afternoon before the memorial lecture which Sally Alexander gave, my husband John and I visited an exhibition at the British Museum called Egypt, Faith After the Pharaohs. Some of you might have seen it. Among the exhibits was a photograph of Professor Solomon Schechter. Fingers crossed. There he is a scholar of ancient languages and Hebraic texts. He's sitting in a dark corner of Cambridge University Library at a wooden tresson table, head bent, leaning on his hand, surrounded by what looks like heaps of swirling, teeming rubbish. And it is greasy, dirty, and apparently smelling to high heaven. This was all from the Cairo Genizar, or storeroom, of the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Fustat, or Old Cairo. Genizot, the plural, are temporary repositories for worn-out Hebrew language books and papers, 
and Jewish custom forbids the throwing away of writings that contain the name of God. They're honoured by being kept to decay at their own rate. Usually, Genizot materials are gathered and buried, but not in Cairo, where the discarded writings were stored and became a giant waste paper basket of what turned out to be 300,000 manuscript fragments, dating from the 10th to the 19th century. Lots of documents had the name of God on them. So the waste paper basket, as it were, included religious works, obviously letters, poetry, drafts by the revered medieval philosopher Maimonides, children's school primers, magical amulets, medical prescriptions, marriage documents, business dealings, including those with Muslim partners, and a mountain of other ephemera. And in the 1890s, Solomon Schechter explored the Genizar and took materials to Cambridge, where they eventually became an archive. The exhibition told us that the fragments were absolutely priceless, unique, and absolutely crucial in revealing a continuous history of the Jews living alongside Muslims and Christians in a multi-faith Egypt across the centuries. Looking at this image, I was unaccountably stricken with tears. I almost broke down. In part, I think I was moved by the sheer scale of the task that Schechter had set himself, an epic struggle against oblivion and obliteration. But my distress was out of proportion, seemed out of proportion. After all, I might have found the photograph inspiring or even comical. Looking back now, I realised that it called to mind another image, which many of you will know, somewhat less dramatic, of Raphael in his study, surrounded by books and papers. More than anyone I ever met, Raphael also dedicated his life to learning from those scraps of the past which give substance to memory and allow the dead to speak to us, the historian's task. And of course, when I saw that photograph of Schechter, I was about to attend this memorial lecture, and I was also in the British Museum, in that twilight atrium with the terrible coffee, uh, where, the, as it were, the spectral space of the old British Library, where many of us once worked. It's especially haunted for me, as I'm sure for others, by Raphael's ghost. Well, I often met him there, unearthed him from his seat, dug him out of the North Gallery, where he was usually hidden behind stacks of books, papers spilling out of bags. And Raphael was always in the middle of a Herculean task and several deadlines at once, as he was when he died. The unfinishedness of the work, those fragments on the table, which Schechter called disiecta, membra, scattered leaves or limbs, were for me, I think, an image of the untimeliness of his death and perhaps also a memento mori, for we all die in medias race. But Schechter's Jewishness resonated too. Books and scholarship were Raphael's lifeblood. His mother's father, Jakob Nierenstein, had run a religious bookshop in Wentworth Street off Brick Lane, not far from here, in Spitalfields. 
Yakov and his wife Feigl had come from a, a small shtetl in Belarusia and Ukraine at the turn of the century, and they married in Whitechapel. Eventually, Raphael's uncle, Shimon Abramsky, who married his mother's sister, Miriam, took over the shop. Shimon, the son of a rabbi, himself became a renowned scholar of Jewish history and of Marxism and socialist history too. Shimon, Raphael wrote, was his first mentor, and through him especially, he learned a love of study, of argument and interpretation, which chimed with the Jewish tradition of exegesis and commentary on texts. Miriam and Shimon's house in Parliament Hill was Raphael's second home. It welcomed me too. Shimon was an antiquarian book dealer and a bibliophile, and his house was a house of 20,000 books. The title which Shimon's grandson, Sasha, gave to a volume he wrote recently in tribute to Shimon. For me, Raphael's Jewishness was part of his romantic appeal. He was born with the Hebrew first name, Alcan Raphael Samuel, in London on December the 26th, 1934. His mother, Minna, had grown up in the East End, speaking Yiddish with her parents. When I met Raphael in the mid-80s, his syntax, sorry, his syntax occasionally took on a Yiddish inflection from his grandmother, he said. Will you come with, he'd say. Or he'd offer to make me a goggle muggle, now, which was a mixture of milk, honey and eggs, a, short, a sort of eggnog. Wikipedia tells me that the recipe for goggle muggle can be found in 17th century Jewish communities. With his urgent and energetic manner, his shrugs, his gesticulating hands, his extravagant, almost melodramatic language, Raphael was never down or miserable. He was utterly done in. He never had too many commitments, but was absolutely in a pit. <laughs> he never loved people, but adored them. I found him wonderfully foreign and the opposite of the cold and repressed English middle classes, many of which are my beloved friends, I feel obliged <laughs> to add. In his family, I found some of the warmth and openness that I'd missed since I'd left home myself. His mother, Minna, and I talked to each other immediately. I remember how startled and delighted I was when I first met her. She grasped me by both of my wrists and asked me if my intentions were honourable. <laughs> Raphael and I fell in love, as you do, with fantasies of the other's otherness. The romance, the deep attraction of the foreign and the exotic is perhaps something we hear less about these days. It was Schechter's photograph, though, that made me cry. Raphael's photo does not move me very much, perhaps because as his widow I made a lot of copies of it, on the, and on the day he died it appeared in obituaries, it took up a full page almost in The Guardian, half a page, and I remember the shock of seeing Raphael's face before we'd even had the funeral. One of those first moments of the, the sort of disjuncture between private and public, the smashing together of them. We used that photo on the back of the tributes to Raphael in the Conway Hall in 97. 
First, so put it on the back of Ireland stories, the second volume, the posthumous second volume of Raphael's Theatres of Memory. It's become too familiar, if you like, for me, though it has an obituary presence. And what draws my eye this time, which I hadn't noticed before, is the tiny roll-up cigarette in his right hand, um, where a pen should be. Raphael gave up a couple of times, and for good, not long after this, but he left it too late. Thinking about these photographs opens up this gap or disjuncture between private and public. And I remembered the term used by the French critic Roland Barthes, punctum. Barthes' final book, Camera Lucida, is a series of reflections on photography, but also a meditation on the death of his mother. In it, he ponders the strange ways some photographs, but not others, can affect us, and he differentiates between what he calls the studium and the punctum. The studium is what we bring to bear on a photograph, the cultural field or body of information, the codes through which we read it, the fact that we can see immediately that Schechter is a scholar and not a madman or a seller of old clothes. I recognise that archetype of the scholar-hero through Christian iconography, the proliferating portraits of Jerome, for example. And the codes here, this is a painting by Jan van Eyck in the Netherlands around 1442. The codes that signal scholar, the secluded space of the study um, or monastic cell, the disordered books and papers, the posture of the man alone at his desk, deep in abstracted thought. Sometimes there's a lion, but that's a bit of a muddle because it was a different Jerome who actually removed the thorn. There are many, many portraits of Jerome. This one certainly took inspiration from Van Eyck. It's by Domenico Girandau in Florence, 40 years later in 1480. Same posture, the open book, the wonderful writing desk, the scissors, Inkwell, and even his glasses, his spectacles there on the side. That's the studium, as it were, through which we frame our viewing. But then there's that second element, which some photographs, as it were, will... Um, the way in which some photographs will affect us, the punctum. Bart writes that it rises from the scene, shoots out of it like an arrow and pierces. It's a wild emotion. A wild emotion. Standing among the ghosts of the past in the British Museum, seeing Schechter, I was back in that anguish of mourning, suspended over an abyss between public and private, private feeling and public space. I was looking forward to the lecture, and I was also dreading it, because for me, as for many others, it's a memorial as well as a lecture. Writing of mourning, Bart suggests that as time goes on, it's the emotion of grief that we lose, the fierce and uncontrolled weeping that one loses, while, of course, the lost person remains irreplaceable. Worse than grieving is not being able to grieve. And I think that weeping at Schechter's image was an opportunity to preempt an occasion at which, as is usually the case in public, I might not be able to feel anything. 
We all know that such public images are rhetorical, persuasive. In this case, they create the dominant image of scholarship and of learning as a territory or field as the scholar lays his hands on the documents and they become his. We don't take these images at face value. Jerome's study or cell in the fourth century was far from being a vacuum where he translated the Bible from Greek into Latin, the Vulgate. He had many female patrons, very wealthy Roman women. And as historians of early Christianity tell us, Jerome needed to persuade his backers that sitting and writing in your study, he was trying to make a case in the early church that being a scholar was just as strenuous as being a desert martyr or the sort of more mundane physical drudgery of monastic communities. Schechter's photograph was PR too. He was in the midst of a race for material with scholar rivals, particularly from Oxford and the Bodleian. He was far from working alone, of course. He was a maverick intellectual, warm, friendly, enthusiastic, with socks that never matched. Which reminds me a bit of Raphael. And he was introduced to the material by two astonishing Scottish women, Agnes Lewis and Margaret Gibson, self-taught polymath twin sisters, who were perforce outside the university. Raphael's photo was taken by a professional photographer, Stefan Walgren, in 1993. It also says historian and intellectual, with its accoutrements of glasses and pen, the props of books and papers, and especially perhaps the very idea of a portrait in monochrome, signalling gravitas, historicity and depth in the age of a colour snap. It's elevating, pictorialising, singling out the subject as special. The photographer seems to have absented himself. Walgren manages to make Raphael seem unposed, relaxed, gazing pensively down into the middle distance beyond the camera sphinx-like or with a Mona Lisa smile, weary and yet calm. I like the stillness of the photograph, the way it's composed in both senses. It's a photograph for me of detachment. It has the quality of an icon. Now those who knew Raphael, and there are many of them here, will quickly contradict this image of the serene, solitary scholar. Raphael's was an immensely peopled life. While he produced innumerable essays, articles, pamphlets, edited volumes, journalism, most of his energies went into collective and collaborative projects, most notably with History Workshop. His only monograph, Theatres of Memory, appeared when he was nearly 60. His vision of education was not about territoriality. He spent 32 years teaching adults at Ruskin, a trade union college, and was largely indifferent, if not hostile, to the idea of a career. Writing was a form of activism where possible. And of course, what's missing from the photograph is the telephone, which is to the left of his desk, was constantly in use while he was writing sentences and paragraphs, ringing friends, trying out arguments, reading passages aloud to fellow historians, quizzing librarians and archivists like David Webb at the Bishopsgate. Many people here tonight will remember Raphael's voice rather than, as it were, the silent image. 
And then working and living with feminist historians also challenged that separation of private and public, which hives women off into the former and does not see it as history. In 1975, in an introduction to Village Life and Labour, Raphael wrote a long, tender acknowledgement to Anna Davin as his co-worker and partner to their life together with her children, Dom, Kathy, and Mick Hodgkin, whom he helped to bring up. He was partly overturning the male academic convention of anonymizing the wife to whom, etc. But perhaps more importantly, he was underlining the feminist argument, which he makes at more length, that the so-called private space, the home and life of the family, for instance, was no more free of power relations than the factory and no less suitable for historical analysis. When we first met, I was sometimes baffled by Raphael's constant use of we. We have decided to, he would say, or we were looking at. It wasn't the royal we, but he was speaking of Ruskin or History Workshop, infinitely preferring identity with others to the first-person pronoun. He honoured the collective will to an astonishing extent. Just one little example, which is a wedding photograph. Um, this is from our, when we got married in Brighton, as you can see, in the 80s with the spiky gelled haircut on my side. <laughs> on our wedding morning, I expected Raphael to appear at the registry in an open-necked pale pink shirt, which we had specially chosen for him. But he stayed overnight with Brighton comrades who redressed him. <laughs> in a white shirt and red tie, which they thought was more respectable and more in keeping with a sort of radical. Um, I like this photograph. I mustn't talk too much, but I like the fact that we're not smiling. I like the fact that I've got my jacket nonchalantly on my shoulder. And the fact that the photographer, it wasn't a, a, a professional photographer, took the pier behind us I feel a sort of sense of embarkation, almost, as I look at it. But, you know, it's a public photograph, but, of course, there's a whole other set of stories behind that public photograph, one of which is a relation to the public or private self. Raphael was often allergic, that was one of his words, to the idea of the self. He grew up as he wrote, a religious child communist for whom the idea of a personal or private life was taboo. To be a communist, he wrote, was a complete social identity. His mother, aunts and uncles were all in the party. Family, social life and political life were one. In the essays, The Lost World of British Communism, Raphael wrote wryly about what he called his species being, his formation, as a young communist, created in part at progressive schools during the war, like Longdean in Bedfordshire, where putting your hand up too often, being competitive, earned you a black mark, not a star. <coughs> Unlike me, he had no romance about writing. He distrusted the idea of the writer and saw no glamour in it, with its hint of self-importance I think it still smacked of bourgeois individualism. When I married Raphael, I was 30 and he was 50. 
Much of his life was simply history to me. He'd already had several existences, among them the child from a London Jewish home torn apart by war and divorce, a communist until 1956 who had renamed himself Ralph, sorry, Ralph, because the comrades in St Pancras branch apparently couldn't pronounce his name. He was also Raph, the Raph of History Workshop and Ruskin. Raphael, in the words of his dear friend Stuart Hall, in the obituary Stuart wrote for the New Left Review, reinvented himself many times. After Raphael died, faced with what then seemed a lot of publicity, which of course was before the new technology, I made a montage of photographs, Raphael in his swimming trunks, Raphael in a pinny cooking dinner, Raphael, as it were, in domestic life. And I used to thrust this montage under people's noses when they came to visit, these images of a private person. That, I think, is one way to write a memoir, asserting the primacy of private life over the public. At the time, it was a defensive and possessive act. It was understandable, I think, in the early days of deep grief, a way of signalling my own special relationship to Raphael. But it isn't good enough. It doesn't do justice to Raphael's being or to the marriage and how private and public were lived within it. So I think of that photo of Raphael again. Now, let's see if I can just nip that. Yeah. And what touches me most now in the picture of Raphael, apart from that little cigarette, is actually the jumper he's wearing. Probably I am the only person who knows that it's dark blue patterned, and it comes from Shetland, where we went on honeymoon in 1987, the result of a romance of the rugged and windswept, which was the aesthetic he inherited from his mother, Minna, who loved walking, and as a good communist, disdained anything too soft or sybaritic. Later, I got him to Minorca and Crete. <laughs> Typically, we were not alone on honeymoon. We were met by friends, and Raphael spoke to a meeting of the Labour Party. <laughs> we bought jumpers in Lerwick, and this photo shows me in mine with Raphael's round my neck. We bought the photo, sorry, we bought the jumpers in a shop in Lerwick, and the jumper prompted a memory for me of the shop. After I'd bought mine, the assistant turned to me and asked, and is your father wanting one too? <laughs> Beginning to write my memoir, I found our differences are a good place to start. They're a part in the attraction between us, but also their jarring effect. The age difference, say, which upset the logic of the family. Raphael could have married my mother. It upset two and unsettled peer groups on both our sides. It called in question the importance of being part of a generation. The idea that you are part of a generation, that that's how you define yourself. It also skewed the assumed sequence of life's development. Raphael died before my parents did, so I was left at 41, out of sync again. 
Like Raphael's Jewishness and my Englishness, such disturbances give ways into historicizing our romance and our changing sense of who we were. Like all couples, we exchanged gifts and needs, but those also changed over time. When I moved into Elder Street, I took the brightest room as my study. I was no ingenue, I was 32, but I had never had a room devoted entirely to my work. When I took a photo of Raphael in his study, he responded by taking one of me. 20 years on, I can acknowledge that I learnt by copying Raphael, that he was an example to me. Not just his methods of work, the dreaded A3 files, which I think you can see lurking over there, which I still use, which was part of Beatrice and Sidney Webb's method of working, which Raphael taught me and many other people here, and was, is extremely greedy of paper and very cumbersome. Um, I think above all, by, I learnt from Raphael in the way that he took me seriously as an intellectual. With Raphael, I could never think too much, something that haunted me in childhood and girlhood. Although I think I do look a bit coy in this photo, somewhat embarrassed and sort of basking in the image. What I like about the photo of Raphael is that it's clear there is a photographer in the room. It's, I mean, apart from the fact that he's tanned and it's summer, there's a feeling of anticipation to very different from the still portrait. As I became more confident in the world of speaking, the public world of speaking and writing, Raphael began to enjoy playing with an uxorious self, establishing rules for what he called a domestic culture, not telephoning his dear friend, Gareth Steadman Jones, after 11 o'clock at night, for instance, for the sake of the marriage, was the phrase he would use. <laughs> Our marriage... Raphael suggested affectionately, would be in Marxist terms, a dialectical union of opposites. From two very different people, something new, a third entity, the marriage, would evolve. The marriage was bigger than both of us. So I decided early on when I started this memoir that I'm not writing a biography of Raphael but that I would try to use the marriage as a lens or a frame, an optic would have been Raphael's word, through which to see our past and my future. Yet all marriages take place in history. Even if I begin from inside our domestic life, our house was in a place and a time, in a street, a city. I have a story to tell, which I can't tell here, about Spitalfields, where we lived and where I went on living an area that went from being a London backwater to being all but swallowed up by the mega developments of global capitalism. I wanted to start in this way, obliquely with these photographs, to suggest how porous and slippery private and public are, how they leak into each other even as they define each other, how the terms change historically how the idea of a personal life, the relation to having a self, whether one believes in its fiction or not, can be differently lived. In between this is the shadowy zone of memoir, deliberate exposure of intimate or personal feeling in public, 
I think this lecture is already in that zone. Widows don't often give memorial lectures. In the past, it would certainly have appeared unseemly. And I think feminism has made it possible for women to speak in public, at least in some societies, and not always without opprobrium, as we know. And widows are now writing memoirs. Joyce Carol Oates, Joan Didion come to mind, among others. But the popularity of memoirs are also part of a boom in the culture of exposure. The idea of privacy has undergone profound transformation in our own time. Mobile phones, selfies, Instagrams, videoing your giving birth, the blogosphere, the Twitter sphere, YouTube, etc. But also surveillance by corporations and the state and by that same social media. These have all changed or created a different relation to what constitutes the private or the intimate and what feels like or is deemed a separate or separable public sphere. Back in 1981 in Camera Lucida, Roland Barthes registered this before the new technology as, quote, the creation of a new social value, the publicity of the private, the private publicly consumed. So one of the things I wonder about as I write this memoir is what do I still think of as purely private? Are there limits? Is an idea of privacy still crucial to an idea of rights? Do we have the right to be the subject of our own lives? This is a legal, moral and political question as well as a question for life writing. I found myself reluctant to show you a photograph of Raphael actually wearing the jumper on honeymoon lying on the grass, lover-like, looking up at me. But I have to wonder what or whom I felt I was protecting. And at the very least, I suspect my hesitation dates me. But I think when something is disturbing like that, it's a good way in. It's a good way into thinking and it's a good way into writing. I've always loved reading memoirs, and this last year I've read many more. And I'm just going to move towards conclusion with a few observations and a little bit more about my own work. They seem a freer form, not obligated to provide the chronological sweep of biography or autobiography. They can come at life obliquely. Memoirs seem closer to memories, plural, unreliable, random, and potentially, alas, interminable. Memoirs may remind us that any kind of history is inconclusive. Virginia Woolf called her unfinished memoirs a sketch of the past. Many of the memoirs I love most, like Woolf's, are written by novelists and poets who self-consciously make memory one of their subjects. The lanes in Leitrim, where the Irish novelist John McGahn wanders, which the Irish novelist wanders down at the beginning of his wonderful memoir, over and over, those lanes are deliberately memory lanes as he tries to recover the memory of his mother. Such memoirs reach for a different kind of writing which is closer to reverie and dream and the lyrical rhythms of poetry. Remembering for many writers is hailed as a source of deep pleasure, deep sensual pleasure. For Henry James, writing in A Small Boy and Others, it's a kind of ravishment. It's, he calls it, savoury, a personal sustenance as well as food for thought. 
As memoir moves through different kinds of time, childhood, old age, falling in love, mourning, it gives way often from plotting into scenes and images. In Speak Memory, Vladimir Nabokov celebrates conscious remembering as a high human art because it defeats time and chronology, gathering the wandering tonalities of the past, as he puts it. Yet especially since Freud, the memoir has also been the story of wounds. From the horrific extremities of being subject to the ravages of history and political regimes on a national or global scale, to the more local pain and anger of the family story, rehearsing the blows to self-esteem inflicted by parents and others. In Father and Daughter, the feminist sociologist Anne Oakley says she's scrutinising the legend of her father, the social scientist Richard Titmus. And Greg Bellow, in his more forgiving account of his relationship with his father, the novelist Saul Bellow, is also seeking a kind of redress and an exposure of patriarchal power. And as is often the case, private life in memoir becomes the key which opens up a core of identity, a hidden chamber of authenticity. I admire those memoirs which are very reflective, which probe memory, which know that memory is faulty and often cunning, that like the act of writing, the act of remembering is subject to various sleights of hand, has its own unconscious and is different at different times of life. Or as Cora Kaplan puts it in her memoir, Red Diaper Baby, soon to be published in History Workshop Journal, every new staging of the past inaugurates a new form of psychic deferral. In Carolyn Steedman's Landscape for a Good Woman, for instance, a memoir about herself and her mother, or more recently, Jeremy Gavron's Woman on the Edge of Time about his mother, neither of them assumes they can repair seamlessly the damage of a childhood as they ponder the longings that we all have for an ideal parent. At the same time, they let their subjects, these women, remain to some extent unknown and unknowable. Once a life has been turned into stories, Gavron writes, it becomes those stories. And like Steedman, he wants to make his mother representative without her being crushed by context or background, history, as Cora puts it, with a capital H. As I write on, I also am very wary of dovetailing historical and social events with the interior life of the emotions or sexual feeling. This kind of collapse of different temporalities and dynamics where history, I don't know if I can express this, is made to fit subjectivity like a glove. I think that happens in my view in David Aronovich's recent account, Party People my family and other communists. Aronovich's narrator is a kind of superego, controlling the narrative like a detective story, keeping the reader guessing until the end about his wayward parents and then revealing the extent of their dysfunctional lives. Their personal and social lives 
finally appear to be both reflections of their warped politics and symptoms of it. In this conservative version of the past, the narrator emerges older and wiser, passing judgment not only upon communism, but on all idealisms, which are dismissed as immaturity. It's a kind of Wordsworth moment, in a way. Only I think that's to give David Aronovich rather too much um, <laughs> authority. Another question arises. These are all musings, really, from a work in progress, as you'll have realised. I can't write about Raphael without producing a version of myself. But how much does the reader need to know of that me before, as it were, the me that was me before I met Raphael? Or indeed, afterwards? The memoir of the great lost love is a genre in itself. Most are written in the immediate aftermath of a death, from, Will from William Godwin's memoirs of Mary Wollstonecraft in 1978, sorry, in 1798, <laughs> sorry, Barbara, <laughs> which he began a week after her, after her funeral, to Marion Coots's The Iceberg, about her husband's death from a brain tumour. One memoir that I particularly love, The Perfect Stranger, written by the poet P.J. Kavanagh, begins with an account of who he was, a callow, brittle young man, brutalised by war, before his beloved Sally came into his life. She's a golden girl, without much history, as much a stranger at the close as she was to us at the beginning, but coming to represent the idealising power of love, its creative force, but Raphael was not my first love, or my last, nor was I his. It would be false to him to make him a sort of destination for my life, and strange, after 20 years, to make his death the end of my story. In part, these are technical problems, writerly problems, problems of composition and economy and selection. As Kavanagh writes... However we wish to celebrate another person, we have only the bits and pieces of ourselves to do it with. Certainly the partial seems a good way in. Among the files I found when I was clearing Raphael's papers after he died was one marked Alison and Raphael, in which he'd put our memorabilia, things you'd expect like birthday and Valentine cards, but also every domestic note We'd left each other as we went off to work in our different towns, Oxford and Brighton. Imagine what it was like living with this person. <laughs> From these scraps, I mean, often not more than one sentence, I can glimpse the pattern of our life together, what we ate, who made supper, who did the shopping, and many notes that begin, honey, I've gone to bed on my side, and his usually asking, sweetheart, will you wake me up? I can see from the notes how the cat, Morgan, whether he'd been fed or not, whether we'd let him out and so on, was a kind of objective correlative <laughs> for our lover's moods, for our language of mutual care and demand. These fragments 
are as revealing as the lengthy courtship letters that we wrote each other, and perhaps more so since we were both writers in our professional lives and our letters are a kind of performance, as is the diary that I kept at the time. Finally, I've seen a shift too between different kinds of remembering. I am now the age Raphael was when he died, 61. As time has gone on and Raphael has become history, a curious reversal is happening. When I meet younger people and talk about him and our time together, I start to feel as if I'm making it up. So I want to write about him to make him real again. But I have to write as if he's unknown to my reader. And my problem now is the excessive pleasure of remembering James's ravishment. After 20 years, some of the melodrama and solipsism and deep despair of grief has gone, except at critical moments like the one I mentioned at the beginning. And I'm more struck by the comedy of two people coming together, of love and marriage as a human comedy. Between the private and public can be a painful, even harmful place, but it's also a playful and affectionate space. My marriage with Raphael often makes me smile now and laugh, as people have been doing. But it's a levity that I think is a way of lightening the weight of the past. It's not satirical, I hope, or fay, but an attempt at sharing understanding, laughing with, not at, a sort of saving grace which is ultimately freeing. Summoning Raphael back again from the far side of the sticks is an act of recovery and eventually for me again a further separation. Mourning goes on working in a life and like all the bereaved I've had particular work to do at particular times. I've had to learn how to incorporate the dead into my life without becoming a mausoleum, a monument to grief. That photograph of Schechter was also I think so piercing because it brought back to me my own fears of being buried, not only by paper, the archive in the house, the house that was effectively an archive, but also by Raphael's work and reputation, the fear of disappearing, of being inundated under the weight of Raphael's memory. My public job as Raphael's widow has sometimes been an exacerbation of that tug of war that everyone feels when a beloved person dies. How to hold on, how to share, how to let go. It's also been necessary to be a repository for the scattered corpus, to receive the stories and memories about Raphael, to be a collectania, another of Raphael's words. And often now I've become the estate, a rubber stamper, even a symbolic substitute. I have been tremendously grateful to those who set up the archive with me and made it happen, Peter Klaus and Stefan Dickers in particular, and to the Raphael Samuel History Centre, to Barbara Taylor, very much so, and to all the workers sung and unsung who've always included me, consulted me and also freed me. They've let me forget as I've needed to and to stop widowing about at my own pace. I began with a photograph 
arrested, as it were, in time. So let me finish with a dream which transcends it. Over the years of our married life, what we called Raphael's communist unconscious would often surface. Talking in his sleep one night, he woke me and said, the proletariat, darling, is advancing across the globe. <laughs> it was as if that lost world of faith and of looking hopefully to the future, now so discredited and difficult, had finally become a deep reach of private life, repressed, taboo and full of pleasure. But why do I remember this dream and treasure it? Because it delighted me and we both laughed at its apparent guilelessness, yes. But also because it was given to me. I was woken up to receive it. I felt cheered by it. Me, the Portsmouth girl who had lost her footing in her own class. What lifted my spirits was Raphael's idealism and a utopianism whose history stretched back over the centuries, the surfacing of an optimism about the capacity that human beings have to change their lives for the better and to see beyond the narrow orbit of ourselves. I would like my ideal memoir to conjure this too, which is why, for the time being at least, I've called it a radical romance. I'll leave it there. We would like to thank Alison Light for generously allowing us to share both her words and her personal photographs with you. Thanks also go to Matt Cook for helping to write our introduction, to John Stutters for sound editing support, and to Katie Pettit at the Raphael Samuel History Center for coordinating the event where Alison spoke. If you'd like to get some more information about History Workshop, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter at HistoryWO. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. In our next episode, we are going to be examining the place of the historian in the post-truth world. Stay tuned. <laughs>